stories, spirituality, pathways, and aliens. You're here on The Long Road Home. Hello, everybody. Hello. I'm Chad. And I'm Emily. Welcome to The Long Road Home. We hope everyone out there is having a wonderful week. Guys, listen, we found our new favorite thing. We did. Oh, my gosh, you guys. I'm so stoked. I'm sure, well, if you're following us on Instagram, you might have seen this in our story um, kind of randomly. But I have recently gotten super into geocaching am i right people it's pretty fucking Come fun on. yeah it's a blast what, what have emily we been doing all has, these years she's in it i'm in it she's i got the app herself. i bought the subscription to the app um because i wanted full access yeah she she's gone all, all in geocaching. on geocaching and boy we've been doing it yeah you guys should check it out there's an app we're, it, they're not sponsoring us, but it'd be cool. They'd be a lot cooler if they did. Um, What's the name of the app? <laughs> the app is it. called Geocaching. It's just called Geocaching? <laughs> it's just called Geocaching. All right, so listen, if you don't know what Geocaching is, yeah. pretty much what you're doing is you're you're going out with essentially a, a GPS, and you're looking for certain coordinates, and people write hints about little stashes of things that they've laid somewhere inside the, like, like on a tree, they've hung something up on a tree or it's like underneath a piece of metal or something or like inside a brick or some shit like that. So, yeah, you go there, you try and find it. And if you do, you get to usually log your name on a little piece of paper that they have right there. And then you leave and you go to another and you do another and another and another. Or sometimes there's trinkets and you can like yeah, bring a are. trinket and take a trinket. So that's kind of fun. But it's more just about bragging rights. <laughs> Yeah, it totally is. Emily is <laughs> very competitive. She has become a competitive I'm gonna geocacher. I'm going to get them all. I'm going to get all the geocaches. I'm so excited. She's completely There's taken like the spirit of geocaching and twisted it <laughs> into her own form. It's no longer what it's supposed to be. What do you mean? Now, it's what a, else it's is a it fight to, to see who gets there first. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people, because sometimes they leave little things for you there. If you are the first person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nothing sure. like there's super No, but there's prizes. You can get like a free ice cream coupon or yeah. there was one time a Garfield comic yeah, or a t-shirt. The mo- one of the most relevant comics of today, Garfield. vintage. Yeah, vintage. <laughs> well. Um, yeah. So, but heads up, if you're in Bozeman and you're geocaching, uh, you might see the LRH pod. Yeah, look for it. We have been putting that all on All across there, town. <laughs> <laughs> we're just getting real niche. If we weren't yeah. already niche, we're getting even more niche. Talk about niche. niche marketing. Yeah, exactly. Um, Anywho. So. Um, wait, but wait, wait, no, wait, one more thing. Okay. Here's the th- here's the thing, and we can maybe delete this. I've had a hard time finding people that um w- want to do this with me. <laughs> um, it's not, it's not I, a huge community. I don't understand it, though. Like, it was something that I wasn't aware of. And so when I became aware of it, I was like, real-life treasure hunts, and you can do it every day all over town. This is amazing. Um, and I really thought, like, people would just join me in masses, you know? Um, you know what? Nobody puts the effort into anything anymore. But it's just, I was That little say, extra step is really hard Also, for if you're in Bozeman or Big Sky and you are interested um, in geocaching, I'm looking for some partners. So 
Hit us up at the Show at gmail.com. Yeah, it's going to be a long summer of geocaching. <laughs> Chad's it reminds me of rando nodding, but you actually get rewarded at the end. Exactly. You don't just wind up in someone's yard and they're looking at you all weird. And, the rando nodding you know. thing was like cool in, in theory, but we just kind of, yeah, it just kept taking us to people's houses or like yeah, random parking rando lots. not in the city. Yeah. You, just, you literally wind up on people's property. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, they don't appreciate that, I guess. It's fine. You know, that's it's their land or whatever. But no one no one owns that land, actually. It's my right to come look for spectral phenomena on your property. I think somewhere in the Constitution talks about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well. Oh, one last thing before we start, actually, guys. Sorry to just keep throwing stuff on here. But uh, Duck and Trussell Family Hour, Nick Hinton, the guy whose tweets we talked about in the Mandela Effect, was actually on there, and they spoke at length about some of the stuff he's been like investigating, which is really cool. Talk about synchronicity. Yeah, it's a lot of like alien investigation and stuff. Holly, encourage you to go listen to it because the guy's he's got a lot of like fun thought experiments and stuff. So go check those out. Definitely. Okay. But now, time for our podcast. Don't yeah. leave yet. You can go listen to him after this. We're just getting this. started. Yeah. So if you're listening to this podcast, there is a good chance you may have some issues with today's religious systems. It would be really easy for me to say a certain group of people in America have hijacked an entire religion and tainted it so badly it's never going to appeal to most of the population, but I'm just some guy, right? These days, it seems like any sort of meaning that used to be instilled in churches and places of worship is all but gone, replaced by fear-mongering and tribalist hate. Well, what if I told you there was another way? What if I told you that you could find that inner peace you used to find drinking that grape juice in church that's supposed to be Christ's blood but isn't alcohol because lots of Southern Baptists are ex-alcoholics and fear of a literal hell is the only thing keeping them from slamming a car through the post office? What if I then said, there's a religion out there that can help you find the good teachings of God again? What if finally, after all this, I told you it's all thanks to our great prophet and it's his alien abduction that offers a path towards true salvation? Does that perk up those tiny little ears of yours? Yes! Yeah, well, if it does... (laughs) You are going to enjoy today's episode because we're talking about UFO religions. Woohoo! Oh my God. I'm so excited. Yeah, and I just this was fun. can't hide it. Fight it. It's hide it. Hide it. Wonderful. And I just can't hide it. All right. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is a gr- this is a really fun episode. We're talking about like not really like big cult leaders, but we're talking about these because these are this is something that I, that I really believe is like in the nooks and crannies all over the place. So oh, these little small groups of people that believe something really out there, at least to like you know regular religious people, right? And so we're gonna go over a couple of them today. Yes. Yeah. Um. Today's episode is gonna cover a few wacky prophets convinced they found the light via interaction with eddies or extraterrestrial intelligences. We're telling the story of two men prominent in the UFO world during the 50s who grew a cult following out of their experience. But before we begin, let's go ahead and list our sources. The sources for today's episode are Encyclopedia.com, GalacticMessenger.com, which we will talk about heavily, Science.HowStuffWorks.com, and Wikipedia. Also, today's episode is inspired by um, a passage from Cults, Conspiracies, and Secret Societies, The Straight Scoop on Freemasons, the Illuminati, Skull and Bones, Black Helicopters, the New World Order, and many, many more by Arthur Goldwag. Cool. Yeah, we got that at Barnes & Noble. Support your local bookstore. It's a good read, too. Check it out. Okay. Let's start with George Adamski. Adamski. We're going to say Adamski, right? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Adamski. Adamski. Yeah, I've heard both. Okay, so I actually, I YouTubed his name just yeah. to see what came up. The only thing that came up were model UFO videos. One of them had mm-hmm. no like actual uh, voices, so I never saw how to see the name in there. And the other one was just a two-minute video of a man holding up the, the a model of the UFO that Adamski believes that he saw. 
Gotcha. Yeah. So you say okay, however you I'm want. I'm going to go with my gut. <laughs> um, so we're starting with George Adamski, the far out spiritual guru who met a Venusian. At least that's what he wanted everyone to believe. Adamski was born in Bromberg in the Kingdom of Prussia in the German Empire. He was one of five siblings born to Polish parents, Josef Adamski and Franziska Adamska. Oh, very that's close. close. Very oh, close. No. Not a great start, but that's okay. When he was two years old, his family emigrated to the United States and settled in New York City. From 1913 to 1916, beginning at the age of 22, he was a soldier in the 13th U.S. Cavalry Regiment, or K-Troop. K-Troop! <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. Represent. Um, fighting at the Mexican border during the Pancho Villa Expedition. In 1917, he married Mary Shimbersky. She died in 1954, and they had no children. Following his marriage, Adamski moved west, doing maintenance work in Yellowstone National Park and working in an Oregon flour mill and a California concrete factory. Diversified. Very much, kind of like me. <laughs> a spotty resume. He's just, you know, picking up gigs. He's a modern man. In the 1920s, Adamski became interested in the esoteric occultist religion, theosophy, and a variant called neo-theosophy. By 1930, Adamski was a minor figure on the California occult scene, teaching his personal mixture of Christianity and Eastern religions he called Universal Progressive Christianity and Universal Law. Uh, I just uh, want to stop right here. Theosophy is a, that's what Madame Blavatsky was throwing around oh, back in the day. Oh, shit. So he got in I on thought that, that rang a bell. Yeah, Madame Blavatsky. We'll have to do something on her at some point. A yeah. lot of people are doing, have woman. done that in the past. Yeah, she's, <laughs> uh, we're going to do that eventually because we'll, we'll do it. After the hype's died down, we'll bring it back because she, she has a great story. Definitely. By the 1930s, Adamski had established a niche as a low-rent guru in Southern California's mystical scene. He founded the Royal Order of Tibet, whose teachings drew on his psychic channelings from Tibetan masters. They held meetings in the Temple of Scientific Philosophy, where Adamski served as a philosopher and teacher at the temple. Interesting little side note here. The Royal Order of Tibet was given a government license to make wine for, quote, religious purposes during the Prohibition. <laughs> yep. <laughs> nice, George. I see you. Adamski was quoted as saying, I'm going to call him George, by the way. From now on, I think I'm just going to call him George because I keep going, Adamski, Adamski, Adamski. Okay. Yeah, it's just, fine. George was quoted as saying, I, <laughs> I made enough wine for all of Southern California. I was making a fortune. Yeah, he really took immediately went that like tax free religious route and was like, I'm just going to do everything I can to make money with this. Honestly, well done. Why I did not? not know that that was a thing happening in Southern California during the Prohibition. No, I applaud neither. him for it. However, the end of the Prohibition in 1933 also marked the decline of his profitable winemaking business, and George was forced to find a new business venture for income. It turns out his wine was terrible. He just had, they had no other choice back then, <laughs> but his wine, as soon as they had another option, they were like, ah, we can't, we can't keep drinking this we're shit We're not now. doing that This anymore. is swill. Yeah, this is like, toilet wine. This is my bathtub, guys. <laughs> um, in 1940, George, his wife, and some close friends moved to a ranch near California's Palomar Mountain, where they dedicated their time to studying religion, philosophy, and farming. In 1944, with funding from Alice K. Wells, a student of George, they purchased 20 acres of land at the base of Palomar Mountain along Highway S6, where they built a new home, a campground called Palomar Gardens, and a small diner called Palomar Gardens Cafe. S6, by the way, is just a, that's how they designated county routes in California. 
Thank Just you. looked it up. Because I did not know what that was. At the campground and diner, George often gave lectures on Eastern philosophy and religion, sometimes late into the night to students, admirers, and tourists. He also built a wooden observatory at the campground to house his six-inch telescope. Six-inch? Yeah, I guess he didn't have a big one. I don't know. <laughs> he had a wooden <laughs> observatory for a six-inch? That's to be six foot, right? I, I honestly don't know anymore. It's been a minute since I've looked at this. <laughs> it's pretty good. Okay, that's pretty fun to imagine, though, that he had an entire observatory built for his six-inch yeah, telescope. let me show you. I guess it was the, you know, Prohibition Age. Maybe, was that a maybe fancy thing to have? I bet it was. I bet that was cool as hell. Six inches is bigger than you think it is. <laughs> You're right. Uh, I my, am right. My apologies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, six inches is plenty. Anyway. Visitors and tourists came to Palomar Mountain and often received the false impression that George was an astronomer connected to the famed Palomar Observatory at the top of the mountain. <laughs> Um, he would correct this inaccurate impression, quote, only when pressed to do so. Yeah, yeah. I'll work up there. Yeah, we're, it's the same thing. That's we're why just... I got this little telescope. <laughs> it had to be bigger than that. Oh, man. Um, though he was usually referred to as Professor Adamski by his admirers and followers, and he often implied or claimed to possess various academic degrees, Adamski held no graduate or undergraduate degree from any accredited college or university, and in fact, only had a third grade education. That's all you needed back then. Uh, he didn't know shit. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> really. Was, he was not a professor. No, he was not a professor. Uh, he went, theosophy is all about that fucking grift, and I think he, mm. I think he <laughs> learned that from his time spent in, a, in that little school of thought. And Absolutely. I think he was like, well, I guess it's my turn to go take advantage of whoever I can. In the late 1940s, Professor Adamski produced pictures of what he said were spaceships he had photographed through his telescope. During a meteor shower, Adamski and some of his friends claimed that while they were at the Palomar Gardens campground, they witnessed a large cigar-shaped mothership. Okay, we've heard that before. In early 1947, Adamski took a photograph of what he claimed was the 1946 cigar-shaped mothership crossing in front of the moon over Palomar Gardens. In the summer of 1947, followed the first widely publicized UFO sightings in the U.S., Adamski claimed that he had seen 184 UFOs pass over the gardens one evening. In, in one yeah, evening. That was to upstage all the other UFO enthusiasts at the time. Yeah, there were a lot of them coming out. This is a big time for, for UFOs. Definitely. Um, he was out there trying to one-up them, I think. The pictures attracted wide attention, but the events that began on November 20th, 1952 would make George a saucer immortal. George Adamski was the first and most famous of several so-called UFO contactees who came to prominence during the 1950s. Responding to channeled directions from extraterrestrials, Adamski and six fellow occult seekers headed out for the desert. Near Desert Center, California, he separated from the others and met a landed spaceship. Its pilot was a friendly fellow named Orthon, a handsome, blonde-haired Venusian. George claimed the people with him also saw the Venusian ship, and several of them later stated they could see George meeting someone in the desert, although from a considerable distance. That part is interesting. I would like to know more about that, but there's honestly not a ton of information about this guy out there. I'd like to know what the other people think they saw. Because I don't think this guy met a Venusian. <laughs> it could be wrong. I mean, uh, it's always interesting 
He had he, made some bold claims prior to this. He had. He was. Yeah. He was very much uh, attention seeking, I think, mm-hmm. and wanted people to know that he had seen an alien and he had met the Venusian, a handsome, blonde-haired, strong Venusian man. Yes, very handsome. We see that word over and over. Um, yeah, but also I think that it was kind. Of, it was an escalation of sorts as well. You know, it started out with one or two sightings, and then it went up to 184. Where are you going to go from there? Now you have to meet him. You know. Yeah. George described Orthon as being a medium height humanoid with long blonde hair and tan skin wearing reddish brown shoes, though, as George added, his trousers were not like mine. Very specific. <laughs> <laughs> They're different. Different pants. George said Orthon communicated with him via telepathy and through hand signals. During the conversation, Orthon purportedly warned of the dangers of nuclear war, and Adamski later wrote that, quote, the presence of this inhabitant of Venus was like the warm embrace of great love and understanding wisdom. George claimed Orthon had refused to allow himself to be photographed and instead had asked George to provide him with a blank photographic plate, which George claimed he had given Orthon. George Hunt Williamson, a contactee and Adamski associate, also claimed that after Orthon left, he was able to take plaster casts of Orthon's shoe imprints. The imprints contained mysterious symbols, which Adamski said was a message from Orthon. And that message was, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> Christmas story reference. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well really done. Pulling that out of my ass in May. I was going to ask if he April. was looking what at them through rocks in a hat yeah this That's is all what i was this getting. all reeks of joseph smith <laughs> right it really his story is like of, of the two his story reeks of mormonism yeah <laughs> back to the mormons <laughs> they're a cult um orthon is said to have returned the photographic plate to adamski on december 13th 1952 that's when it was developed and was found to contain those strange symbols right it was during this meeting, though, that Adamski is said to have taken a now-famous photograph of Orthon's Venusian scout ship using his telescope. At the time, skeptics said it looked suspiciously like the top of a chicken brooder for warming newly hatched poultry. As the photo made its rounds among ufologists, Anglo-Irish eccentric Desmond Leslie... What a d- description. It's, yes. <laughs> I'm an Anglo-Irish eccentric. <laughs> Desmond Leslie, too. Yes, flared hair, purple suits, the whole nine yards. I imagine they were a character. While they struck up a correspondence with Adamski. In the mid-1950s, Leslie had created a low-budget UFO film entitled... Them in the Thing... At his home, Castle Leslie. Man, I want to meet this guy now. Yeah, I want to go is. to Castle Leslie. <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of weird orgies happening. <laughs> uh, 100%. There's no way that orgies were not taking place yeah, at Castle a of, Leslie. a lot of satin scarves in mm, the establishment. Mm-hmm. The flying saucer in the film had been created by shining mirrors onto a Spanish Renaissance shield suspended from fishing lines. Apparently, this film was so bad, they decided to hide it because for a long time it was lost. But then the film was rediscovered in 2010. Yeah, that's cool. I love lost films or recovered films, I guess you could say. I haven't seen this one. I'd like to find it one day and check it out. It'd be cool. In need of money and keen to create a bestseller, Leslie had written a manuscript about the visitation of Earth by aliens. Its genesis had been Leslie chancing upon a copy of the 1896 book The Story of Atlantis and the Lost Lemuria by William Scott Elliot in a friend's library. 
Adamski sent Leslie a written account of his supposed contact with Orthon and photos. Leslie combined the two works into a 1953 co-authored book called Flying Saucers Have Landed. The book became a bestseller and brought both Adamski and Leslie news media attention and eventually became, quote, a key text of the New Age movement. Yeah, I didn't know that. That book apparently really made some waves, though. People digged it. That was cool. Dug it? Not digged. (laughs) (laughs) Dug it. Yeah. I did not know that the New Age movement was uh, founded partly upon a strange combination of Atlantis and a a little man's UFO story. Yeah, it's... a very interesting uh, amalgamation of characters yes. and stories, isn't it? Um, just to give you a little summary of the book, it claimed that Nordic aliens from Venus and other planets in Earth's solar system routinely visited Earth. According to the book, Orthon and other aliens were worried that nuclear bomb tests in the Earth's atmosphere would kill all life on Earth, spread radiation into space, and contaminate other planets. Adamski claimed that Nordic aliens worshipped a, quote, creator of all, but that we on Earth know very little about this creator. Our understanding is shallow. The following year, Leslie visited George in California and claimed to witness several UFOs with him. Leslie described one of them in a letter he sent to his wife while he was in San Diego as, quote, a beautiful golden ship in the sunset, but brighter than the sunset. It slowly fades. It slowly faded out the way they do. Oh, so now he really now he's an expert at it's seeing all UFOs. I mean, you see one, you've seen them all, right? Right. <laughs> um, George published yet another book in 1955 called Inside the Spaceships. In it, he claimed that Orthon arranged for him to be taken on a trip to see the solar system, including the planet Venus. The location where Orthon said the late Mrs. Adamski had been reincarnated. Yeah, so we're starting to get into like that weird UFO spirituality part of his story. Gotcha. He claimed that in another voyage, he met the thousand-year-old elder philosopher of the space people, who was called the Master. Not to be confused with Philip Seymour Hoffman's rendition of the Master, <laughs> which we did not get to watch on Netflix because it's they coming took- back. Oh, great! Cool. It's coming back. Yeah, you it's should on gotta, the list. You guys should look that up. It's uh takes a a look at a certain religion that maybe you get sued if you talk about. Yeah, so we're not going to talk about it, but I feel like you guys know what we're talking about. Yeah, Tom Cruise is in it. What? No way. Anyway, George said he and the master discussed philosophy, religion, and the Earth's place in the universe. Adamski said he learned that he had been selected by Nordic aliens to bring their message of peace to Earth people, and that other humans throughout history had also served as their messengers, including Jesus Christ. Adamski further claimed that aliens were peacefully living on Earth and that he had met with them in bars and restaurants in Southern California. It's really interesting to me how a lot of these early, these UFO thing, the religions, I guess is what you call them, they start to like cram Christianity into whatever they're believing. I know. Isn't that so interesting? I had no yeah. idea prior to this that these types of religious groups exist, and there are so many of them. Yeah, they are. There's so, so many of them. I don't Just I don't aliens and Jesus. So, like, a, just not the right combination. It's like ketchup and peanut butter. <laughs> Yeah, they don't really go together. No. But, you know, At least not for by some, they standards. do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, 
George's stories led other people to come forward with their own claims of contact in interplanetary travels with friendly, quote, space brothers, including such figures as Howard Minger, Daniel Fry, George Van Tussle, and Truman Bethurum. Hmm. Yeah, all prominent ufologists, ufolo- ufologists back <laughs> then. Ufologists. Yeah. The message of Adamski and his fellow contactees was one in which the other planets of Earth's solar system were all inhabited by physically handsome, spiritually evolved beings who have moved beyond the problems of Earth people. The reader, That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, right. That's Hot, so smart nice. people. Yes. Yeah, projecting. They're projecting. <laughs> because ufologists usually aren't that, right? They're, they're squat little men. Right, but out there. They're beautiful. They can be. They can be. They are at least can be among them. Yeah, it's like a fan fiction. The reader of Inside the Spaceships enters a perfect world, the kind we can create here on Earth if we behave ourselves. They say that through books, lectures, and conventions, particularly the annual giant rock UFO convention near Landers, California, the contactee movement will grow throughout the 1950s. However, George would remain the most prominent and most influential of the contactees, so prominent that he was requested for a meeting by who else but Queen Juliana of the Netherlands. Who else? Who else? (laughs) In May 1959, the head of the Dutch Unidentified Flying Object Society told Adamski that she had been contacted by officials at the Palace of the Queen who advised, quote, that the Queen would like to receive you. Wow. Yeah, it's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. The little the squat man is getting his chance in the sun. Yeah. She wants to receive <laughs> you. Adamski informed a London newspaper about the invitation, which prompted the court and cabinet to request that the Queen cancel her private audience with him. But the Queen went ahead with the audience, saying, a hostess cannot slam the door in the face of her guests. After the audience, Dutch Aeronautical Association President Cornelius Kolf said the Queen showed an extraordinary interest in the whole subject. So yeah, she was uh, into this for some reason. Yeah. I don't know what's going on in the, Net- the Netherlands. She wanted to get, to get, to get there, involved. But... I wonder how she heard about him. Yeah, back then, I don't know. Telegram. Yes. <laughs> the Royal Netherlands Air Force Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Hay Shopper, said the man's a pathological case. Time magazine reported that the Amsterdam newspaper De Volkskrant said, Once again, Queen Juliana's weakness for the preternatural had landed her back in the headlines. She had invited to the palace a crackpot from California who numbered among his friends men from Mars, Venus, and other solar system suburbs. That crazy Juliana's at it again. Like, how many times did she do this? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, I want to know. Tell me. There's so much information that you'll just never know. We need to look into this How many times did the queen bring crackpots into her (laughs) domain? Apparently enough that this was not the first time. Queen Juliana. The lieutenant general wasn't the only one who didn't hold Adamski in high regard. Throughout his, quote, career, or whatever you call this, Adamski had his fair share of naysayers who saw him as nothing more than a grifter with some wild stories. Whether or not he ever met Orthon was one thing, but the guy was very quick-witted and was able to use some of his an- animosity towards him in stellar fashion. In 1957, George received a letter signed R.E. Straith, alleged representative of the Cultural Exchange Committee of the U.S. State Department. The letter said the U.S. government knew that George had spoken to extraterrestrials in a California desert in 1952, and that a group of highly placed government officials planned on public corroboration of Adamski's story. George was proud of this endorsement and exhibited it to support his claims. However, in 1985, ufologist James W. Mosley revealed that the letter was in fact a hoax. Mosley said he and his friend Gray Barker had obtained some official State Department letterheads, created the persona, and then written the letter to Adamski as a prank. 
According to Mosley, the FBI investigated the case and discovered that the letter was a hoax, but charges were never filed against them because life was just a little simpler back then, apparently. You could just uh, do anything. You could just impersonate a federal agent. Actually, you know what? Honestly, it's not like today. You can do that on 4chan right now. You can go pretend to be someone you're not Absolutely. and convince an entire nation you're not wrong. that you know a storm's coming. <laughs> Mosley also wrote that the FBI informed George that the Straith letter was a hoax and asked him to stop using it as evidence in support of his claims. But George refused and continued to display the letter in his lectures and talks. He was just like, no, nah, I'm just, I'm keeping this. No, I kind of really like this, so we're sticking with it. Yeah, and apparently, though, this was not the first time he had claimed government support for his stories. In 1953, he told a meeting of the Corona California Lions Club that his material has all been cleared with the FBI and Air Force Intelligence. He's just saying shit. Wow. Mm -hmm. When the FBI learned of his claims, three agents were sent to talk to him. He denied having stated that the FBI or U.S. Air Force Intelligence supported his claims, even though his remarks were reported in a newspaper. <laughs> it's like, it's literally on record. And he agreed to sign a letter stating that he understood the implications of making false claims and that the FBI did not endorse the claims of individuals. The three FBI agents also signed the letter and a copy was given to Adamski. So they were fucking sick of him at this point. Yeah, they're like, we got a, we got a notary involved. We have this in writing. <laughs> like... <laughs> However, a few months later, George told an interviewer that he had been cleared by the FBI and displayed the letter as proof. When the Los Angeles Better Business Bureau complained, more FBI agents were sent to retrieve Adamski's copy of the letter. They read the riot act to him. They warned him that legal action would be taken if he continued to claim FBI or government support for his stories. And Adamski later said that the FBI had, quote, warned him to keep quiet. So he, oh. he flipped it on him. No matter Flipper. what, this guy, he's got, you know, he's always a step ahead. As the decades rolled on, Adamski was still able to place himself in different UFO circles across the country, mostly with exorbitant claims of one kind or the other. In 1962, Adamski announced that he would be attending an interplanetary conference held on the planet Saturn. In 1963, Adamski claimed that he had been granted a secret audience with Pope John XXIII and that he had received a Golden Medal of Honor from the Pope. However, skeptics noted that the medal was actually a common tourist <laughs> souvenir made by a company in Milan, and that he actually he was just displaying it in the same cheap little plastic case that it came into people. Oh my god! <laughs> he was, He's like, no one's ever been here. No one's gonna know. It's there. Nobody's gonna know. <laughs> <laughs> well, he says that he met with the Pope at the request of the extraterrestrials he was allegedly in contact with in order to request a final agreement from the Pope because his decision not to communicate directly with any extraterrestrials and also to offer him a liquid substance in order to save him from the gastric enteritis that he had suffered from, which would later become acute peritonitis. Um, that's very generous of them. Yeah, here, Pope, drink this liquid. <laughs> it's such a stupid story. <laughs> it's like Pepto. Yeah. And a pre... <laughs> At a press conference in March 1965, he predicted that a large fleet of flying saucers would soon descend on Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, Adamski wouldn't be there to greet them had they actually arrived. He died that April at age 74. Bummer. Yeah, almost. He almost died. Since he, Who knows? Yeah, he would have loved Independence Day. Who knows? Maybe he was reincarnated with his wife in the, among the Venusians. Yeah, that's the thing. We don't know. Since his death, Adamski's critics have tended to portray him as a harmless crackpot, small-time con artist, or perhaps a bit of both. Others, like J. Allen Hynek, took a somewhat dimmer view, accusing Adamski and others like him of discrediting the entire field of UFO research. 
Author Arthur C. Clarke had made the same point years earlier, saying that George and co-author Leslie did a real disservice by obscuring the truth and scaring away serious researchers from a field that may be of great importance. But Adamski stuck to his story to the end, including the upbeat but somehow ominous message he delivered in Flying Saucers Have Landed. My most urgent message and plea to every person who reads it is, let us be friendly, let us recognize and welcome the men from other worlds. They are here among us. Ooh. Yeah, one final warning from George Adamski, king I, of the UFO people. I like that message. I can get behind that aliens are already here. What? Yeah, yeah. For, for sure. So he was definitely one of the first people that really started incorporating religion with aliens. And that whole group of people really started, were doing it, I guess. But he was the first, right? Right. Um, I don't know how big of a following he had, but uh, it's. De- it, I don't think he did as well as the next guy we're going to be covering. Definitely not. No. Up next, we have a man whose entire religion is based around the fact that he is, in fact, one of the angels mentioned in the book of Revelation. Let's what? dive into the story. Yeah. he's. This is. <laughs> this one's a little, a little more... Uh, Left field? I don't know. If the other one was left field, this is like the popcorn stand on the side of the f- baseball game. Yeah. Uh, where someone's trying to sell you condoms out of their wallet. Is that what happens over there? Yeah, I guess so. I, I, it's been a long time since I've been to a baseball game, so it, maybe it is like that now. I don't know. <laughs> Let's dive into the story of Alan Michael and his everlasting gospel. So we should go ahead and let you know that what you're going to hear next is pulled almost entirely from the Galactic Messenger site. It's yeah. just busting at the seams with knowledge about Alan, which I guess it should be considering this slender little dude is basically a demigod to whoever is, is running this website. So let's go ahead and dive in. Alan Noonan, who would later be called Alan Michael, was born November 21st, 1916 in Britt, Iowa. A precocious child, he excelled in art and running, earning a track scholarship to Drake University. He left after one record-setting year. This is all from his page. <laughs> Remember that. This is all from his page. Yeah. Most of this is are direct quotes from his um, group. Yeah. Realizing his self-education far exceeded anything formal education could offer him. World War II arrived and Allen was drafted as a conscientious objector. He served in North Africa with a non-combatant camouflage battalion until the end of the war. Soon after the war, he was married with children and moved to Southern California with his wife, Marion, and growing family. He began working as a sign painter for Foster Kleiser Advertising and raising his three children, Dennis, Stephen, and Lori. Sounds like a pretty chill job. What, sign painting? Yeah. yeah that's not, can't be that hard, right? I'd like to do it. Yeah, you probably can't because now Robot's doing it and they're taking our jobs. We have a local sign painter in town. Have you seen him? He does all the window signs. Oh, yeah. Do you guys have one of those? We have one. We have one. The guy just wanders around and paints your windows. <laughs> He's really good at <laughs> He's it. He's pretty good at it, actually, yeah. Um, He's an artiste. He always has like art in his little bike cart too. Yeah, the dude's a character. If we have one here in Montana, we know if somewhere out there you've got one roaming about the streets. Send us pictures of your local sign painter today at the show at gmail.com. I love that. Send us pictures of your sign painters. I want to see them. Yeah. It was also around this time that Alan experienced what he called his, quote, cosmic initiation. This next part comes directly from Alan. In 1947, when this body was 31 going on 32, a very wonderful experience came to me. While working as a pictorial painter in a Long Beach shop, I was taken up out of my body and initiated into a mission which, I know, will change the whole world. Oh, yeah! Sorry, I'm excited for this story. (laughs) This is good to hear a lot of this voice. (laughs) I was up on a painter's truck, painting on the higher surface of a bulletin board that was to be finally assembled elsewhere when this wonderful experience came to me. A shaft of ultraviolet light entwined with gold threads enveloped me, and I, the entity in this body, 
was taken up into a great room inside a spaceship. During the experience, I was shown my whole life in this incarnation, and as I transcended space and time into eternity, I saw the friends who are the guiding spirits of this earth humanity. I was made to feel as though I was before a great tribunal, being chosen to carry out a great mission for my people. Alan. Alan? This guy's name is Alan? Ugh, fine. Alan, you are the chosen one. It, you know they were reg- also, immediately regretted picking this guy from the paint. Like, oh, he, we picked up the sign painter. Oh, man. <laughs> he continues. The day of my etheric ascension was on Good Friday about 2 p.m. just before Easter, and the experience continued intermittently until after Easter Sunday. I was connected with the galactic logos, the great galactic being manifesting as this whole galaxy. A beautiful yet powerful voice like thunder and lightning spoke to me. This voice was audible to me, coming out of a brilliant beam of silver and golden light, and it was projected out to either side of me and above and below me. As I turned my head, I saw that I was in a great amphitheater with beautiful white pillars that seemed to circle around me. There was an open, brilliant, deep blue sky above me with points of brilliant colored lights. A large planet was visible, and beneath me was a dazzling array of green and the colorful sprays of flower gardens. I love the detail. The voice asked me if I would serve as a spiritual comforter to give supernal truth to the world. Alan, you must comfort those who need comforting. You seem like someone who could probably comfort a large bosom lady and not pop a boner. Alan, you're perfect for this job. <laughs> he has like a Mr. Rogers type. He seems, honestly, he seems like a nice guy. He seems like a nice <laughs> guy. If a weighted blanket were a human, it'd be yeah, Alan Noonan. That's a good description <laughs> of him. The comforter. Right? Yeah. A, a very, very he, a comforter who thinks very highly of himself. Because He's a plush in, comforter. In this next part, he says, This did not surprise me because from childhood, I had known who I am. As a youngster, I was visited by angels at different times while playing alone. I was told and shown things, but was told never to reveal those things to anyone because they would not believe them and I would only be ridiculed for my beliefs. Anyway, I considered that world as my dream world. Yeah, so he claims to have been visited by these people from basically and a lot of people do though a lot of people who have been visited by or claim to have been abducted or seen uh aliens or been in contact with them claim that it happens during their entire lifespan a lot of times right but they're like something changes and then they're ready to come forward with it yeah it's interesting it was not real to me in comparison with the material world but now of course i realize the heavens to be a greater world Even as a child, I did not believe in an anthropomorphic god in the sky, but was in a personal god experience. I had the universal concept of an omnipresent god within me, which gave the outer world its beauty and made me one with all things. I was in God, and God was in me. I knew that it did the greater work and that I was its student of life and nature. The whole panorama of my life passed before me. Not only did my earth existences flash through my mind, but also my existences in other worlds. My answer to God's question after a few moments of revelations was simply, Yes! Yes! He was into it. Uh, apparently at the end of his experience, and I'm not going to, he's, he's got a lot more stories. I, I was, I got all that out. I don't think I'm going to keep doing it because I know it's just slowing down production. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
that was the end of his ex- first experience, and he he does say though that he got back in his body and he was so excited that he could not work the rest of the day. Uh, he likely yeah. story. Yeah, he says that later it was physically revealed to him that he had been taken aboard the mothership of the Galactic Command Space Complex, and that the light was a means of opening his higher uh, ESP or PSI organs of perception in preparation for the completion of this project. Ah, he went, gotta get then, that pineal gland opened yeah. up. And then I think in one of my favorite parts of this his story, he went around to the other workers in the shop to see if they had seen anything, but everyone else said, "No, I don't know what you're talking about." So. Uh, a lot of time had passed, apparently, and he was the only one that was there. Um, so I'm really curious because he did say, like, the consciousness that, like, inhibits this body was lifted up, right? Didn't It wasn't his physical body. No, I think, yeah, so, I think so. So then I like to picture he's, like, working on a sign, and all of a sudden he just starts, he just stares at the ceiling. He's just done. And he just kind of stares at the ceiling for, like, I don't know, 20 yeah. minutes. Like, there's fucking Alan. God, what a weird sign painter he They're is. They're just like, what's going on? They're snapping in front of him. They're like, oh, he's just sleeping with his eyes open. And all yeah. like, did you ever see that? Back then, they weren't going to take you to the hospital. They're like, just give it, Just make sure he's smoking. That'll help. Yeah, go take it. Have put, a smoke. Put a cigarette in his nose. Yeah, calm yourself down, Alan. But yeah, this is Alan's very first contact with extraterrestrial beings, and they were to, they kind of threw a lot of his plate almost immediately. He's going to be the comforter of the world, but what does that even mean? Well, in order to find an explanation, Alan decided to take a look at the King James Bible for some reason, because I guess that's just what you did when you saw aliens back then, because that's what everyone else was doing. Well, he said he had seen angels before. Yeah, I so guess I that's true. Like, but yeah. it's also weird because he he didn't really believe in like a brick-and-mortar style God. He didn't believe that there was like a literal floating man in the sky. You know, I'm sure it was just like the text available. That's kind of what I was were, thinking. Like, boy, I got I got to figure out something. This is the only book that even remotely resembles this thing that I've experienced. I better dig into it. Right. He's not like George, who was living in Theosophy Land. No. He no. was kind of. He had a family. He had a wife. He had a job, and all of a sudden, he's like, "Aliens? What do I do with this?" Better read Bible? the Bible. <laughs> um. Anyway, the next morning, Alan claims to have opened a King James translation of the Bible, reading a compilation of verses in the Bible's glossary under the Comforter and Holy Ghost. So what did he do? He went to the appendix. These verses can be found in St. John chapter 14, verses 16, 17, and 26, and chapter 16, verses 7 through 14. These verses say, quote, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another Comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send you in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you, and also unto you, and so unto you as well. And it was good. And it was good. The other verse is, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you all into truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So that's, that's what he Very found in the Bible. Very clear that that's, we're talking about Alan here. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know about you. That's all he, I Alan mean, was written all over yeah, that page. I don't know about you guys, but this really resonates with Not us. Jesus. No, not Jesus. No, Alan. Abs- I mean, what's the difference, right? <laughs> <laughs> Alan goes on to say that, quote, from that time until this day, I have remained in cosmic consciousness. And messages have come through me that have been put down by my hand as the everlasting gospel, which shall be preached to the whole world so that 
the end of this old dying world order will come through the spiritual democratic action of the people rather than by fire. We'll talk about that more a little later, yeah. too. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack in that statement. Obviously, though, Alan accepted this mission, right? And from that point onward, he has been in direct telepathic contact with the universal mind of Eddie, channeling the energies of the spirit of truth through the spoken and written word, as well as in deeds done that will bring this world up to and through our planetary cosmic initiation into the long-awaited kingdom of God. That's from the website, if you didn't know. Um, Yeah, we didn't write that (laughs) part either. (laughs) Yeah. And also, at some point during these interactions with the, the, the Eddies, he received a different name. So at some point he stopped going by Alan Noonan and instead went by Alan Michael, and that's that's after an angel, isn't it? Yes, it is. He's one of the angels from the Book of Revelation. So, duh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> While Alan was busy trying to figure out just what exactly he was going to be comforting, he opened his own art studio and began to channel the information coming to him in a stream of consciousness from the Eddies. He also opened a coffee house, the House of Meditation which rapidly became a happening place for young music groups to launch their acts, like Jackson Brown and others. But his family life was not to continue. He and Marion divorced. Wonder why. Then, in 1954, Alan claims to have yet another more intimate experience with a UFO and the beans that were inside. Okay, so this is another direct story from Alan, and he goes into a bunch of detail. We hope you enjoy it because this guy sure likes to talk. Yeah, he does. He's conceited. I'm not going to do the voice, by the (laughs) way. No, that's okay. I'm not a pro like Chad. It was 1954 at Giant Rock in the Southern California desert that I had my first physical contact with extraterrestrial space beings. Several times before, I had gone there to make contacts. I would see the ionized clouds forming from the force field of the scout craft that would be hovering, but there was not an actual physical contact until the latter part of July 1954 because I could not get into the energies that would complete the experience before then. It was early one morning as the sun was rising and I was on my sun deck on top of my art studio in Long Beach, California. I looked up and a great round cloud was forming overhead. The telepathic voice in my consciousness told me to follow the cloud to the desert and I would greet my space comrades. Yeah, he had, he, during his last, like, big encounter, he claims that after that happened, the voices never stopped. They just kept talking to him in his head. So good, I guess, for him. I don't know. Uh, You know, it sounded like he had a handle on it. (laughs) His wife divorced him, so maybe not. Maybe not. He was taken off to the desert following. Building potato monuments like in Close Encounters. Like any good ufologist would do, Alan grabbed a sleeping bag, got into his station wagon, and headed after it. Eventually, the cloud led him towards the high desert near Joshua Tree National Park and Giant Rock. By this point, Alan, through what I can only assume were very clear-headed thoughts, had learned that he could listen for the aliens through a headset as though it were, as he put it, a radio TV audio-visual transceiver. Um... They didn't have cell phones back then. No, I think I think he's just referring to like rabbit ears. Ah, understood. I'm ass- I'm assuming that's what he's talking about. It's a little, it's very wordy. They were energetic. Um, it was an energetic uh, radio headset. Yeah, I can only assume he meant that he had taken a set of rabbit ears and wrapped them around his head with aluminum foil. <laughs> oh no, the voices in the head are a little concerning. But he didn't. See- he doesn't seem concerned. No, not and, at all. He's got his. He's and got we'll his, see what where this his, goes. You know, I mean, it goes somewhere. Yeah, it does. He has his radio, TV, audiovisual transceiver. He can. He has not a worry in the world. <laughs> 
He also lets us know that there were four other groups of people up there who I'm positive got to hear all about the cloud he chased to end up there. Yes, while a cloud did lead me to this spot, the real treat is what I'm hearing here in this headpiece. No, no, it's not attached to anything. I just have the end shoved up my ass as a ground mechanism for the shockwave that will come from my eventual abduction. Okay, I'll let you all get back to your picnic. Please do not let my ramblings take away from your special day. <laughs> oh, it's a little scary when you put it that way. Yeah, it's. I would, I would be a little freaked out if a man walked up to me and was just like, I followed a cloud up here. Did you know that? Do you see that cloud? <laughs> it's leaving a trail for me. Do you see the ionization? <laughs> oh, no. Well, eventually, Alan claims to have heard a voice telling him to camp out overnight and that his contact would be coming after dark. The next part comes once again from Alan's mouth, and I'm starting to think that maybe this guy had a bit of a superiority complex, kind of like the kid who can bully other kids just because he's got the biggest bones. <laughs> Anyways, he continues, I had brought food along, and I was enthralled by the experience I would have. I already knew that I was an extraterrestrial space being incarnate in this body, and had come from the Galactic Command Space Complex, which was contacting me, and also that there were some two million entities incarnated with me, who had been redeemed from this planetary project and sent back here to make a stand with me as Michael when the everlasting gospel was completed. Yeah, he at this point was completely lost in the sauce, I think. He he was it. convinced that whatever he was doing was the thing that was going to save this planet. The rest of the afternoon at Giant Rock, I relaxed and waited for a sign in the sky of my contact. The big oval clouds kept forming about. Wherever the spaceship hovered, an ionized cloud would form around it from its force field. I would see a flash of light dart across the sky to another location, and a cloud would form there. After the sun went down and the sky was pitch dark with stars shining brightly, I saw flashes of light move across the sky. About 9.30 p.m., I got on my mattress in the station wagon and fell asleep. In a dream, I was in the flying saucer with those I had been with before I came here. At 3 a.m., I was awakened by a whirlwind rocking the car. I could smell the ozone in the air. What does that mean? I don't know. I have no idea what ozone smells like. If anyone knows what ozone smells like, email us, the show at gmail.com. We are... <laughs> Begging someone to email us, please. please email us. A lot of dead air over there in our in our Gmail account right yeah. now. Yeah. I got out of the car, and about 150 feet away was the cloud, dimly lit inside. I walked towards it, and the cloud moved from the north away from me. The message in my headset was that in the morning I would drive up on west, further beyond Giant Rock on the desert road, and make contact there. Don't you hate it when you're just doing something and it requires you to go do something else? Such and a pain in the ass. And then there's another step. And then there's another thing. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So, what, so what sort of half-ass test were these aliens putting Alan through? It's ridiculous. They just wanted to make sure he was committed. Yeah, you're. I guess you're right. It they're, was the to ultimate me, test. They're acting like an unenthused teacher who just gives out memory retention quizzes every week. And honestly, I don't blame them. It's a really bad time to be a teacher, let me tell you. <laughs> Y'all aren't getting paid enough for all no. those dumbass parents you talk to on a regular basis? Absolutely not. No. You are raising the future generation, yeah. and you are getting paid the minimum for this. Give teachers more money. Talk to your local uh, politicians, representatives. Talk to everybody. Make a change. Okay, so let's finish up Alan's story. He says that in the morning, I drove about a mile further out of sight of everyone. They didn't want any witnesses because this would just cause me lots of problems with the establishment. Uh, it's a I mean, valid reason, I guess. But it's legit. Once again, gotta go alone. Got to. Yeah. No cameras. <laughs> nope. 
These contacts were not for my own pleasure. They were for the purpose of bringing about an equilibrium of clairvoyance in my etheric body to make all-knowing more real to me. Uh, um, so it's not just for you? No, it's definitely not for the probes. No, I'm just saying. It's, for, like, it's clairvoyance. He's like, this was, not ju- this was not for my own pleasure. It was about but it was increasing still about my power. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I didn't like it, but it was making me stronger. Yeah. At about 10 a.m., the round spaceship materialized about six feet off the ground, 75 feet away. I had a camera, but I was to take no pictures. When the time came to be recognized by Earth people, the space beings would give me many pictures. An opening appeared in the ship, and a platform shot out. Three beings floated out on it. From left to right, as I faced them, were Favelron, Celeste, and Jameston. Those are just regular names now. Yeah, there really are. <laughs> I was aware that I had been on voyages with them before. They were all smiles and waving excitedly to me, and I was excited beyond words. The ship was about 75 feet across with a large, clear light dome on it. I walked to within 50 feet of it, and at that point I could go no farther. The telepathic message was that I could not enter their energies at that point, because an earth body at that time could not function in their vibrations. Together, they threw me kisses and flash, they were gone, and a streak of light flashed up and out of sight. And I just stood there blushing <laughs> and holding my cheeks. Gotta take you, gotta said, accept oh, alien kisses. You guys, <laughs> shucks. I learned later that the materialization of the entities there was not an actual physical coming, but was a projection from their mothership. The scout craft, however, was very real indeed. Anyway, it served the purpose of surrounding me with energies that would connect me closer with them and would lift me more above the mundane earth vibrations so I would not suffer so much on paranoia from the negated mind energies and territorial auras of the planet. So, these big experiences are what led Alan to really take on his role as the Great Comforter. When the 60s arrived, Alan headed to San Francisco, where he opened the Mustard Seed Restaurant and started fulfilling his new role when he began the One World Family Commune. So, now that we've got Alan covered as best we can, let's talk for a bit about what exactly the group of people he's assembled is going for. Although we couldn't find exact numbers, it seems like somewhere out there, this commune is going strong. They have a podcast, for Christ's sake. Yeah, they do. At least they call it a podcast. I, I don't know where it is, but it's on their website, and there's like 200 episodes. <laughs> hey, they did it. Yeah, there's every you know weekly episode is a hard thing to do, as we're learning. Yeah. This commune adheres to the communal agreements of 1974, which are an extremely strange combination of Christian-like beliefs and other anti-materialism ideas. Just to get an idea, we'll throw a few of these agreements at you. We hold all things common, and so the Godhead has already provided for our coming forth in the Constitution slash Bill of Rights of the U.S. of Israel. We have evolved the only true government of, by, and for the people on this planet. It needs no laws, only rules that everyone observes because they were made by all of us as the ways to live comfortably and socially together. We have evolved the only true government of, by, and for the people on this planet. We require no cash income. Then you start to head down the list a little further and you see some things and you go, this is a cult for sure. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost immediately apparent that what they're doing is uh, very cult-like. Yeah. Um, some of the later agreements say things like this. 
Everyone in our commune is on an essential first cause five-hour shift each day. This shift should be considered our bread and butter shift, or the one that creates the cash flow, that pays the bills and gives us our food, clothing, shelter, care, recreation, transportation, communications, and utilities. Then we have other shifts in things which we are promoting, shifts that help in the spreading of the EG and its wonderful schools of creative experiences. These are the schools through which we shall stop the whole world and turn it into a great school, a school where the people will start all over again, learning everything the right way and transforming the whole world into an isle of paradise for everyone. Yeah, so the agreement really becomes more of like, you will work for free for five hours a day and you will make your own clothes and you will eat the food that we provide you. And uh, it begins to get a little isolating, I think. Or sustainable living. <laughs> I guess you could say that. Is I guess it's a fine line between commune and cult. Yes. And I, I see how you could see this as like maybe everyone is just doing it and they're happy about it. But there's also the sense that like maybe if you don't do it, <laughs> something might happen. Right. Maybe. So I don't know. Right. They also go on to let potential members know that the administration of the OWFC or One World Family Commune which they say is of the messianic complex, is autonomous and is not subservient to a majority vote. In the OWFC, there is no duality. The duty of those who make up the inner circle of the messianic complex is simply open to the way economically, scientifically, and technologically for the members of the One World Family to come forth and bring all the people of the earth into the wonderful communal living experiences. Yeah, I don't know what any of that means. That's a lot. That's pretty <laughs> wordy, y'all. Like, it is. Let's, can we get some clarity? I need some transparency here. Yeah. So, yeah. It's all seeming pretty much like these folks are sitting around printing Ellen's books for free to make money so they can eat what I can only assume is some form of bland white mush. Yeah, it's kind of what it feels like. Speaking of those books, boy, does Alan have them. The most important, I'm assuming, is called The Everlasting Gospel and is supposedly channeled via Alan Michael. According to the website, they refer to The Everlasting Gospel as the New World Bible, which comes from the telepathic creation universe we are in and not from a man-god up in heaven on a throne. Hmm. Their words. Very salty about Very uh, salty. organized regular Christianity. Yeah. Um... They still believe it to be a Christian book and think that a bunch of stuff from the first Bible is key to bringing about the new world they envision. In the new Bible, the planet is envisioned as a healing planet, but occupying space in a ruined solar system. This explains why the world is generally so shitty and full of shitty people. We're talking money, politics, pollution, any form of government, militaries, etc., it's because of our misunderstanding of the natural law of cause and effect, or comma retribution, that things are this way. But one of these days, we're going to learn, or so they think. Here's a bit of a quote from them explaining all this. The main reason the world goes on into worsening wars and civil conflict is that neither the masses of people nor their elected officials thoroughly understand the natural law of cause and effect slash karma retribution. But they shall all learn the natural law for now, for this is the great time of times when the Godhead fulfills its great promise to us. 
Many of our scientific and professional minds in their psychological analysis are yet under much illusion in thinking that there is something wrong with the human nature and the nature of our planet. But finally, they wake up to the truth that nothing is wrong in the atomic body as the universal mind has programmed it. The people are being led from within to seek the perfect way of life, and those things appear to them to be war, crime, disease, poverty, etc., are simply the negative effects of people's wrong causes. Yeah, so this is all well and good, but this next part does strike a chord as to what's going on today, and I gotta say I kind of agree with them. Quote, Up to this point, the world has changed steadily according to our psychic and scientific technological growth. And now the mass consciousness is sufficiently expanding and the technology is developed enough so that the world people can unite and rebuild the whole world. Now comes a great period of leveling off. As the scriptural prophets declared at this time, which is that great time of times, the world people find themselves caught up in a struggle with those people who are yet orthodox or status quo and cannot see the essence of it all. But they shall see. As soon as the people who are ready for the great total changes unite together in one universal purpose for all humanity, and this is the mission of the everlasting gospel. It's the dawning of the yeah, age. Yeah, it's the age of Aquarius. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, that's exactly what they're talking I, about. I dig this part. I do too. It's one of, the, great yeah, awakening. one of the few parts that I'm like, I got this. Yeah, I understand this. I see you, yeah. Alan. They continue saying, quote, Nearly everyone has his or her own intellectualizations as to why the world remains as it is and why it cannot change, except very gradually through what they call evolution or political action. Most people are unconsciously hooked into the materialist theory that someday, by and by, we shall eventually evolve into a healthy, happy way of life. There is that growing intellectual democratic spirit which causes people to believe in their present ways and means, their church clubs and political organizations, as though these things were normal and would bring the changes that are needed. The truth is that this old world ends all at once and a new world of total fulfillment begins. So it's kind of crazy, right? It's almost like it hits the nail on the head. So how exactly will it happen? Why, I'm glad you asked. The commune believes that all at once, we as a worldwide society could simply just stop. Stop paying bills, cancel any and all debt, and declare absolutely everything free. Money is only worth something if we make it worth something, right? Then... A 30-30-day rotational plan adapted from their five-hour workday plan is set in place so goods are still being made. Oh, convenient. Yeah. In this plan, everyone freely participates in the communal government and no one draws wages. This plan means that all the terrible, shitty things about the earth simply stop existing. No debt, no debt collectors, no stock markets, no banks, no police, no courts, no penal system. You get the gist, right? If you're a little concerned, don't worry. Computer technology can be programmed to compute an ideal schedule which will keep the food, clothing, shelter, care, recreation, transportation, communication, and energy flowing to everyone. Of course, we do not take orders from some hierarchy. We only Flatline structure. Yeah, exactly. Vertical integration. Horizontal integration. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there we yeah, go. There you go. Of course, we do not take orders from some hierarchy. We only take advantages of the services provided by the Planning Commission and computer technology as it applies in reality to our own true needs and abilities. Oh, God, I sound like a sarcastic Fox News oh, anchor. No. It's, it's <laughs> literally a skit from Tucker Carlson, which is a skit. That whole show is a fucking skit. A, Fuck Tucker Carlson. He's just tap dancing, tappity tap, tap dancing for all y'all. Well, not you guys. Not our homies. I don't think so. Please. Please right. stop listening. If you if you listen on, to Tucker wait. Carlson, we need to talk. Shoot me a DM. I'll chat with you. Yeah, we'll sit down. It'll be civil. We'll get <laughs> you through. Kinda. It. We'll get you through it. 
They do hit some very working-class proletariat ideas in there, though, as well. They say that, quote, most of the workers and their organizations have just been either apathetic or under the same illusion as the so-called privileged class, thinking that they might eventually be able to join it themselves. So they continue to work for the old status quo. But now, with everything being free, only the power of the people's mutual agreements concerning how we shall all have real happiness, freedom, security, and abundance in our new world. They just wrote that sentence and didn't finish it. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Then they say, all in one day, our planet becomes a people's world. This is all nice in theory, and we know that it would take a literal act of God to persuade everyone to get on board with something like this, right? Hell, I'd do it if I knew everyone else would, but I guess that kind of trust issue is the main problem we have here. It all does sound nice, though, and here's where we're going to leave the One World Family Commune. Just remember, the group does say, in an almost dark, offhanded way, that if a person doesn't care to cooperate with the planning facets of the people, that will be their loss. Yeah, they'll be sent to the planning commission. That does sound like a 1984, like, the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, like, Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. All those, like, old women that are sent off to toil. Like, uh-huh. you, you know, don't believe in the cause, you could get out. Yeah, you can get out. <laughs> Send you to the planning commission. <laughs> so that's Alan Michael and his One World Family Commune, guys. Yeah, Sorry, I should stop clapping for ourselves, but yeah. it was a good story. <laughs> it was good. It was a good story. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I like it more than George Adamski's just because of how it's still like here and very tangible. Like you can go just download the Everlasting Gospel for free. For it's free. A, a PDF version. If you you only have to buy it if you want to. They've been pumping content though. It's ready for the taking. There, there's literally a plethora of information on their website. I would highly recommend you go check it out. We'll post the link to our Discord, so come join. And so you can get in on this before and stare at it at 3 in the morning, weary-eyed, wondering what it all means. Just like us. Yeah. Well, it's easy to look back in our past, and honestly, the past pretty much anywhere, and see large groups of people adhering to strange religious philosophies. Religion itself is a strange mix of occult motifs and a bunch of words someone claims to have said, and the ones we've talked about today aren't any different. If you're a follower of any major religion out there and you're thinking, wow, these people are kind of crazy, just remember, somewhere out there, there's a group of people wearing clothes they made themselves, eating white porridge, thinking the same thing about you. And that's the episode. All right. Yeah, that was a fun one. That was. Yeah. UFO religions. This might have to be a series. Yeah, one of these days it could be. Uh, I did enjoy learning about these people, and it's people that you don't really hear about in regular. Like you hear about like big time serial killers, big time cult leaders, Charlie Charlie Manson, and stuff like that. But you don't hear about George Damsky or uh, Alan Michael just hanging out in their little hobble with their little group of people eating porridge weird offshoots of christianity somehow i guess that's what you would call them really that's what they call themselves yeah it is go check out the everlasting gospel though it's a little blue book and it's uh very much their bible so we'll we'll post a link to like i said to that website on our discord yeah maybe we'll post some videos of alan yeah, there there are videos. There's of, so many of them. videos. Yeah, he's there. He's he's got a message, and you're going to hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder well, what happened to Marion. <laughs> she's happily lived her life out somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, she was. She's like, we sick don't of talk about Alan. Yeah. yeah, we. Alan is no longer in her life. I don't Aww. think. Well, he's happy though. Yeah. I hope she's happy. Me too. All right. <laughs> well, guys, like we said. You can check out all of the links for this episode in our Discord, which you can find a link to on our Instagram and our Twitter at the underscore LRH underscore pod. Follow us on there, too. We post all sorts of updates. 
You can also find us on Facebook at The LRH Pod and reach us via email, if you didn't hear it earlier, at thelrhshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to contribute to the podcast, you can join us at patreon.com slash the LRH podcast. Patrons get special stickers, merchandise, and stuff like that, so be sure to go check that out as well. Also, guys, we are posting our old episodes onto YouTube right now, and once we're there, we're going to have our current episodes up every week as well, just to have another platform for people to go check it out. Guys, go like and subscribe to that. It's going to help us get our name and our more eyes on the show. It's going to help get our name out there a little bit more, right? Broaden our reach. Yeah, and so if you're on if you're on YouTube, of course you're on YouTube. Everyone's on YouTube looking at feet and stuff. Go on there, give us a like, subscribe to our channel, like the videos, just turn them on in the background and let them play and get us some extra runs. Because honestly, not a lot of traction right now. We had one guy for a while and then I, 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 took, two, I took two weeks off and he's gone. I don't I know where he I lost him. That's okay. Well, there will be more of him. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Also, guys, I know I've been saying Apple Podcasts, but whatever platform you're using to listen to this show, if you can, please leave us a review. Please? Let us know what you think. Uh, Apple Podcast is the primary one that I check regularly, but I do know that there are other ways out there that you can review us. So if you're on one of those platforms, please do. Each one of those reviews helps us more than you could imagine. And so we appreciate everyone that's taken that little two minutes out of their day to do that. And uh, if, you, if you've done it already, take someone else's phone and do it for them. Yeah. yeah. Hack your friend's phone. Please. For the pod. Do it. Do it for the pod. And that's it, right? Uh, yeah. I think we covered oh, wait. all the things. One oh, wait. One more thing. We are moving. Yeah. Our move finally is happening, guys. We're, <laughs> it's we're, been a long, it's been time, a long time. Yeah, we've practically been edging towards this move. So we are finally packing up boxes. We're taking them over to the new place, and it's starting next week, and it might affect our schedule a little bit more than it already has. There is the possibility that we'll be taking a whole week off to unpack and relax for a second once we're in there. So it might be in like two weeks, I think. But we'll keep you updated on that as we get a little bit closer to that time period. And that, that is finally it. Yeah, you know, you want to know where those updates are going to be? In the Discord. Yeah, go join it. I love the Discord, to be totally honest. It's growing a little bit every yeah. week, and I like posting in there and talking to the people that choose to talk. And so please come join and say hello. We'd, we'd both love to see you in there. And that's actually it for real this time. Yes. So thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back next week with even more content for you guys. So please stick around, stay tuned to The Signal, follow us on social media, and as always, join us next time on The, the Long, Long Road, Road Home. Home. Bye, everybody. Yeah.